Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, welcome back to another episode of Latter-day Peace Studies Come Follow Me. We are doing Genesis chapters 24 through 27 today. This is largely the story of Isaac finding a wife and then gets into the Jacob and Esau story a bit before we go directly into into Jacob's story. So this is kind of a transitional period here. We we start with Abraham, we go through some of Isaac's story, and then we end up getting into Jacob. As we were going over this beforehand, Christopher and I both kind of felt like there might be less to really dive into on these chapters, but you know, we've said these kind of things before, and then when we start getting into it, we, <laughs> there's all kinds of, of little things. So we'll kind of see where it goes. There are some additional chiasmic structures in this here, and we're starting to see that this really just presents itself in the way that it's written. You know, even though it's like a poetic style, this is kind of the style of of the prose of these stories here. It's it's very much done in a chiasmic structure. And as Christopher and I were discussing this also throughout the week previously, you know, we we identified one particular chiasmic structure within the Abraham story, but then we realized that that wasn't actually the only way to structure it. And there were three or four or more different ways of finding these structures within it. And then we've also found that there's at least two or three different ways to do the Isaac story as well. So it turns out that that's just a common way of the flow of the text and the narrative within these chapters, especially in Genesis. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Ben. I was I was hoping to bring it up at the beginning of this episode, thinking back to the Abraham cycle, the reading that we brought out that was you know showed up as a chiasmus of the Abraham cycle in the new annotated Oxford NRSV study Bible. That's not the exact title, but that's the idea. Yeah. It really doesn't take in the whole Abraham cycle because it starts with what? 12, I think 12 through 22. Yeah. And the Abraham cycle goes through 25 and it starts really in 11, but on that end, that's, you know, not a big deal. It, it, it starts in the middle of 11, but it ends at 25. And so it turns out if you look at it that way, Actually, one guy said it, it's that what you find at the center of the story is the covenant, right? Lot leaving Sodom. Oh, Lot leaving Sodom. No, 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 that was a different one. No, yeah. yeah, because the ones who found, yeah, because the ones who found the covenant, which you, you know, this is the reading you would expect to find, uh, didn't also didn't take in the whole cycle. So it's interesting to, to to note that. Yeah, it's almost like the more you look at it, it's like fractal chiasmus you know like it just depends on which <laughs> level you zoom at you're gonna see one right <laughs> yeah so here we start off the story with abraham getting old and being determined to find a wife for his son isaac so he charges his servant to go find a wife for isaac now the reason he gives here at least one of the reasons he gives here is that he doesn't want isaac to end up marrying a canaanite What's interesting about this is that some scholars think that this reason given by Abraham is potentially a later addition to the text that kind of echoes more of the concerns and considerations that would have been in the, the Deuteronomy period. And that the second reason really that Abraham gives for going and, and getting a wife is more the positive reason rather than the negative one, don't marry. Really, the positive reason is, you know, I want you to have a wife from my own family tradition and culture. What strikes me odd about that is that the idea in this story is that Abraham leaves that land to get away from what's going on, you know, the the culture and the family and the surroundings, you know, and, the, and God's leading him to another land. In fact, it's it's very explicit in the 
Pearl of Great Price narrative that that's what Abraham's doing. You know, he's trying to get away from that idolatry. So it, it does Same strike in the me Quran. as a little bit. Yeah, it does strike me as a little bit odd that he'd be like, you know, well, we need to go back to that land to find a suitable wife for my son. You know, maybe they've all repented by now or something. <laughs> well, and to be and to be exact, you know, he does not think his son should go back. Right? Correct. But he does want. He does want. Yeah, he uh, sends his servant uh, just to kind of scope it out. Yeah. Yeah, he does want a wife brought from there, but for his son not to go back. It's inter- It is interesting. I, re- I had the same question in my mind. But look where look where they end up. You know, with the the marriage partner that they end up with. Not to spill the beans yet, but we'll get yeah. there. Yeah. So we have this odd statement here as he's talking with his servant, and he tells him to put his hand under his thigh. And I'll make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. Okay, so several things to discuss with about this. One of the things is this seems very odd, you know, that you put your hand under somebody's thigh. Like, you know, nowadays in our culture, one guy putting his hand under the thigh of another guy, you know, probably don't do that. Unless you're playing football or something, you don't don't do that. (laughs) Can I give some (laughs) other translations I read, Ben? Yeah, absolutely. Because I read under the hip. I read under the girdle. And was it under or on the loins? It may have been on the loins, but at least under. So this is yeah. definitely related to the sexual organs. Sure. Yeah. So this is potentially a euphemism for what's actually happening, touching of the sexual organs. But it's more probable that, you know, what's actually happening is the hand under the thigh. But that is a representation of swearing upon the reproductive organs this being the most important thing you can swear by, right? By the person. And and for Abraham, you know, that's particularly related to the fact that his blessing is that he's going to have all this offspring, right? Exactly. We have another interesting translation, though, in uh, the Latter-day Saint tradition, because Joseph Smith comes along and he replaces thigh with hand. So the servant's putting his hand under the hand of Abraham. Now, this is actually not what any of the texts say. They all say something else in that area of the body, not a hand, but a thigh or, you know, you said the hip or, or whatever. Loin, hip, girdle. Yeah, somewhere yeah. down there. So one of the things that occurred to us here that Joseph Smith is doing is what Joseph Smith does, his translation. And his translation isn't a linguistic translation. It's a cultural translation because yes. in our culture, you don't put your hand under somebody's thigh to make an agreement, right? You shake their hand or you, you know, you touch hands, not other parts. And so uh, culturally translating that, it it does actually make more sense to us to say they shook hands or they put their hands together, or put his hand under his hand, because this is an oath, a promise that you're making. And that, that visual really makes a whole lot more sense to us culturally, but actually from the actual text, that's not what it says. And so it kind of brings out, again, to reiterate this point of what Joseph Smith really meant most of the time when he was saying translation. Yeah, that's a really good point. I love this example. It really, it's going to be my go-to example for what Joseph Smith means by translation. Yeah. So he charges his servant to go, travels to that land. It says here that he takes 10 camels with him. You know, obviously, if he's taking 10 camels, he's not alone. He's got some other people with him, but he's the one in charge of Abraham's house, right? But also to cross a large area, you do need, you know, a lot of provisions. So, yeah, or he's loaded up with a lot of gifts or both. Yeah, that's true. It does talk about how much stuff he he takes with him. He would have had some people with him, probably even if just for protection along sure. the way from bandits, right? Traveling alone is not a thing. Definitely. Right. <laughs> so he gets there. And sees the the well for watering and the woman comes up and offers to give him water. Well, he asks her for water and then he gets water and then she offers to water his camels. Well, 10 camels that have just been on a long journey through at least some desert parts can drink a lot of water. So the point that's being made here, I think most specifically, is that this woman, who we we learn right away, her name is Rebecca, this woman is extremely hospitable, extremely generous, and this is the person that fits in Abraham's family, right? Because this is the identity of Abraham's legacy, that he is hospitable, he takes care of guests, 
and he's overly generous with everyone that he meets. And so to come across a woman that is exhibiting these exact same characteristics and personality, or not just personality, but but culture and, and generosity, the servant knows this is the right woman, right? This is, or I'm in the right place at least. And this must be the woman that, that we're looking for because she's going to fit in with the family, fit in with what it is that that is Abraham's legacy and what he's taken as his responsibility is to bless everyone. And so here's the woman. Yeah, at this point, we don't know exactly who she is yet, but he had said, he had prayed, you know, that he was going to ask someone for water and that if the woman said, yeah, I'll give you water and all your camels too, she would be the one. And so this happens. And yet it, the text tells us that he still has to, what's the King James Version say? He has to be quiet and still and actually learn or discern or find out if she really is the one. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, he's still thinking about it in his mind. Like, okay, yes, she does fulfill those requirements, but like, is this the woman? Yeah. Or is he pausing to, you know, for to communicate with the divine, even though he so he comes up with this idea, well, if she does this and this, then she's the one. But then he was told, you know, by Abraham that the presence of the Lord or the angel of the Lord or the Lord, depending on how you read it, would go with him and ensure his success. In fact, it's important to note that he asked, well, what if the woman doesn't want to come back with me? Then what? And he was released from any obligation. You know, you go and you do your best. And if she doesn't want to come, no problem. And I thought that was important because Rebecca has a choice. And that's stated up front by Abraham. She doesn't have to come. Right. And that shows up again later that she has a choice. Yeah. There is an interesting thing that we both talked about here that we might pull out about the, the family of Rebecca just by the way that it's worded. Because it says Rebekah was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor. So it mentions her father, but it doesn't mention who Rebekah's mother is. But then it mentions who Bethuel's mother is and his father. And, you know, just the way that they typically talk about genealogies here and for consistency's sake, it seems that the only reason to mention Milcah as the father of Bethuel is if Nahor, Bethuel's father, had more than one wife. And that could explain why Laban is involved in the decision as to whether Rebekah gets married, as, as was suggested by Enkil and Delich, which is a conservative commentary. And that is that, you know, when there's polygamy, that the father may be less interested in the daughter of a less favorite wife, and so the brother of the daughter is involved in the decision. And so we do see okay. Laban here in, in that sense. Yeah, so the idea is that Nahor has more than one wife, and then Nahor's son Bethuel must have more than one wife, and Rebekah is the daughter of one of those wives. And then Laban, who is Rebekah's brother, becomes involved along with Bethuel in the marriage, if you can call it a negotiation. There's really not a negotiation that happens there, but the discussions... Uh, about it and so well there's a decision right yeah decision yeah yeah and in the end the decision is actually left up to rebecca but it is yeah. the but but these men are the one who who say well let's leave it up to her right yeah the other interesting little tidbit that i saw reading through the kjv translation in the nrsv is that the kjv talks about a ring that is given and it calls it an earring but it says that the servant put the earring on her face which makes doesn't really make any sense. <laughs> so then when you go to the NRSV, you find out, oh, it's a nose ring. And and sure enough, in the KJV footnote, it says the Hebrew says, oh, this is a nose ring, not an earring. So for some reason, the, the translators of the King James decided to translate it earring instead of nose ring. And I don't know whether that's because the text they were translating from wasn't very good. Which it wasn't. Yeah, which it wasn't. Or if they translated it that way for cultural reasons. A la Joseph Smith. Yeah, a la Joseph Smith. But still, you've got earring put on her face. So. <laughs> yeah. And so when you say the footnote clarifies that it is a nose ring, 
You mean from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, right? Yeah, yeah. The So the LDS edition of the King James Version Bible has in the footnote that the Hebrew word here isn't earring, it's nose ring. Right. Yeah. The reason I think that's interesting is because like in our culture, I mean, maybe it's becoming more of a thing, but in our culture, a nose ring isn't something that it, it's a little more taboo, I guess you could say. I'm not really sure how to how to put it, right? That's not... That's not the clean look, so to speak, right? Within the culture. Is it proscribed? I mean, I remember something was said about how many earrings, which is one, right? Per ear. There is a talk by Gordon B. Hinckley that he talks about piercings. And so I don't know if anything's mentioned specifically about, you know, nosing or whatever, but I know that like it's definitely culturally speaking within the Latter-day Saint tradition, you know, a nose ring is pretty taboo. It's even still that way within American culture at large, particularly like the Christian, you know, evangelical or whatever, it would still be somewhat. And and that's that's possibly changing. But my only thought is it's just interesting that the King James Version would translate it that way. It makes me wonder about the cultural proclivities of the Elizabethan uh, yes. translators at the time that, that would have done it this way, said earring instead of nose ring. Yeah, you know, if they changed what the text says to match their own, not theology in this case, though that's done too, but culture. Cultural sensitivities. Yeah. It wouldn't be the first time and it won't be the last. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, maybe it was the first time, but it wouldn't be the last. <laughs> yeah, it won't be the last. You mentioned that last time, Christopher, that you know sometimes there are translations that will outright change what the text says to fit their own flow of consistency and theology, even or exegesis from the Bible, they'll, they'll just exactly change it for what it will be. So, and it's important to remember that a text has to be interpreted, and so that's why we came into this. Ben, you and I came into this with all our cards on the table, and we said, "This is our hermeneutic. This is yeah. the exegesis that we're doing. This, this is the lens through which we're going to read, and this is what that's going to yield." And of course, you know, as we go forward, we can see the, the fruit of that uh, and we'll continue to see that. But you know where we're coming from, listener, if you listen to the first episode, the introduction to the Bible. So I think I would just reiterate the, the point I made earlier about who this Rebecca is. It describes her as beautiful, but then you actually see her character, which this is in contrast to how Sarah is portrayed. Like we talked about this last time, you know, Sarah, Sarah's character isn't really portrayed as one that's particularly like gracious and generous and, and kind and thoughtful, right? <laughs> but Rebecca's is, at least in this chapter here where she is being courted. And so she is the, the chosen one, so to speak, right? She is the one for Isaac because she demonstrates it by her character. And then it turns out that she's uh, even more, right? There, she has even more to offer because it turns out she is the ideal marriage partner being the daughter of Isaac's father's brother. Did I get that right, Ben? Daughter of Isaac's cousin. So they're technically first cousins once removed because Nahor is Abraham's brother. Bethuel is Nahor's son. So Bethuel would be Isaac's cousin. And Bethuel's daughter is Rebekah. So Rebekah is... Isaac's first cousin once removed. Okay, so I had it wrong then. She's not the daughter of the groom's father's brother, but she's family. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and in the sense that Abraham has Isaac when he's really, really old, right? Then generationally it fits. <laughs> yeah, Probably. but the, it's important to note that the slave of Abraham is led to Abraham's own family, not just back to his fatherland, but to his own family. Yeah. And finds this ideal mate for his son. The closest relations that he has. Yeah. And and this is common thread within some Middle Eastern cultures even till today that it might be common to marry a cousin, you know, maybe not a first cousin, but a, a second or third cousin to keep kind of that, that culture and relation within the family. So it's still permissible to marry a first cousin, isn't it? It, it is where I grew up in Venezuela. In the United States, it's not legal. No, I mean in the in uh, <laughs> in the Middle East. Oh, I believe so. I I, yeah. I understood uh, that it was when I was talking and, and understanding the culture that it it is. It's not just permissible. I think that it's still somewhat. It's common. desirable. 
Yeah, it can be considered desirable. Again, I don't know how that might be changing culturally. Traditionally. Yeah, traditionally, definitely not just permissible, but desirable, correct? Within our own culture, you want to make sure you're you're as distantly related as possible, you know? <laughs> right. We found out in our family that one of my wife's sister's husbands is actually related to her. Now, they're not, mm. you know, closely related, but when they found out they're related, that became a a kissing cousins joke. <laughs> they may be listening to this, by the way. <laughs> I I always wonder, you know, like when we would be at uh, family gatherings, my grandfather would come up to us and, and we'd be like second cousins sitting next to each other and be like, well, you know, you're second cousins, so you could get married. <laughs> and we would be like, none of us are thinking that grandpa. <laughs> but I guess for maybe, you know, maybe when I become a grandpa, I'll, I'll think about that more. But, you know, maybe for an older generation, the idea that you would have close family ties, you know, maintaining the in the family, maybe that's appealing. I'm not sure. Well, let's bring out why, why it would have been ideal in the ancient Near East. Hmm. And that uh, has everything to do with inheritance. Yeah, and tribal mindset as well. And Of course. Yeah. So keeping it in the family in both senses is important. Yeah, you, you dilute your inheritance when you, uh, you marry outside of the family or outside of the tribe because of, not just because of birthrights, but you know, there, there's other types of, of inheritances than, than birthrights. Within the tribal structure, you know, it has to do also with trusts and culture and protecting that, which is the tradition passed down and so forth. So that is, you know, more maintained when you when you keep those relations, you know, closer. So, And we'll have to go more into birthright as we go through this conversation too. Yeah, absolutely. Rebecca decides to go with the servant. She makes the decision. They leave it up to her, which, you know, again, I think is kind of a remarkable statement this early on in the narrative of the Bible to state that this prominent woman is, is the, you know, she's the one that made the decision here. It was left up to her to marry. So even though this is sort of an, a, a, an arranged marriage, right? She doesn't know who he is before agreeing to, to marry him. It's still of her own free will, it appears. Well, Ben, not, not personally, right? But that's less important in her milieu, right? In her, in her culture and context yep. than knowing who he is in terms of his family, right? That's the yeah. most important. Yeah. But she, does, she doesn't know him yet as an individual. Well, don't forget that the servant talks about how rich he is. Yes, so, indeed. I mean, there's that. <laughs> and he brings all these gifts as evidence of his riches, which, you know, there's something really to that, to be able to come and say, your daughter's going to be taken care of, right? Yes, like, of course. You're, you're, we're going to take care of her. She's not going to want for anything. She's not being carried off to, you know, as a prize or something. She's she's going to be a prominent woman in a prominent household and and have means. So that yeah. that's extremely important, especially in ancient cultures. Um, for for most of the history of the world, you know, there was a lot more vulnerability on the part of the woman, and so knowing that there was that stability and security was extremely important. Of course, something else I picked up on in my, in my preparation, Ben, is obviously Abraham's slave has brought a dowry. You know, he's brought gifts for once she accepts, but there hasn't been an acceptance of a marriage proposal because it hasn't been made yet at the well, right? And mm -hmm. he's giving her gifts. These gifts I see as gifts that just honor her in her generosity. Yeah, yeah, that I, I agree. Uh, the concept of the the marriage and the union doesn't come up until he can get into the house and talk with the family. Maybe culturally, it would have been in, inappropriate to broach the subject at the time directly to her, not until you can talk with her male, male relatives, I guess. Right. So as she's coming back, she's riding the camel, right? And she, and she jumps off. Isaac. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you had something <laughs> to say about that, that that I hadn't considered before. Well, you know, you and I have both. You've you've ridden a camel, haven't you? Yes, I have. I love. You riding can't camels. dismount from a camel while it's walking, <laughs> right. right? The camel has to kneel, and so I think there's there's just a mistranslation here. And and I looked into it, and and there really is reason to to believe that it's a mistranslation. It it looks more like she how to describe this without a visual. 
Well, she bends down, right? So if you're riding a, a camel or a horse, right, and you want to speak to someone who's walking beside you, you have to yeah. move as it were, you don't have to bow, right? Just as if you were bowing, yeah. bending at the waist toward the neck of the animal. And, and she wants to ask the slave, who is this guy? Maybe whispering, right? She's yeah. also getting close in that sense, just to be able to, to have this private question answered. Yeah, that definitely does make more sense. So Isaac is walking, right? It says here in verse 62. Now Isaac had come from Beer Lahai Roy and was settled in the Negev. Isaac went out in the evening to walk in the field and looking up, he saw camels coming. Okay, so I didn't catch this till you pointed out, Christopher, that the place that he had come from is this Beer Lahai Roy, which is the well where Hagar saw God. Right. So why is Isaac there? Yeah, so my answer would be to be close to God. It, it looks like it's the same place. Hmm. And then he's coming back, and it's interesting that he's arriving while she's arriving. They're, they both arrive at the same time back at, at you know his place. And, and he's going out to meditate. And I think it was Kiel and Delich I read that said that he was obviously meditating on his marriage, but that's conjecture, right? So he's come back from this, from the presence of God, presumably, and he meets his bride-to-be. And when she sees him, she veils herself. Yeah. You know, I, I wonder, it is odd to me, though, for him to be at that place. I wonder, like, so this is this is where Hagar went and and had Ishmael with her in, in one of the accounts, why would that be of importance to Isaac? Why would that place be of importance to Isaac? I don't know. It seems to me that it's a holy place. And that the distinction, I'll add this, the distinction that we make between Isaac and Ishmael, I don't see it in the text. Mm-hmm. I don't see, for example, as as we mentioned last time, that Isaac is is Abraham's only son. Right. He may be his darling son, as Mitchell has it, uh, his beloved son. Right. This is a this is a translation of Yachid, which is the word that, that also does translate as only. But in this context, when he doesn't have only one son, I don't think it's the right translation. He has two sons, and Ishmael's still with us. It, right now, we've set Ishmael aside as we're telling the story, right? But we're going to pick him back up later. Yeah. And there are two nations that come from, you know, from Abraham, one through Ishmael and one through Isaac, and both are prophesied. Yeah. It is a holy place, right? Yeah. Now you had something to say about the, about Rebecca veiling herself, didn't you? This isn't something I know a whole lot about. My understanding here is that this concept of, the woman pre-marriage veiling herself. This still survives till today in in various forms. We do still have the veil and uh, used somewhat in marriage ceremonies, but we also have this tradition of you know on the wedding day the groom's not supposed to see the bride right until she walks down the aisle. That's the idea, right? I, obviously, this isn't always followed, but that that tradition is still floating around some. The idea here is that the marriage or the unveiling is this mystical moment or representative of a mystical moment where the man or the groom is coming, encountering the unknown, the mysterious, the mystery of femininity or the mystery of woman. And and that's that's what she represents. And so it's supposed to be this type of experience. So she, after finding out, after leaning down, not alighting from the camel, uh, and finding out that she's in the presence of her bridegroom, veils herself. Right. And then comes the marriage ceremony. Yeah, whatever that is in this context. I mean, the marriage ceremony consists of them going in the tent and apparently being intimate, right? Right. And so that was a tongue-in-cheek. You know, there's no (laughs) marriage ceremony is is what you'll notice, right? Yeah. There was, of course, the betrothal, right? Yeah, there's the betrothal, which consists of them seeing each other from afar off and her veiling herself. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I mean the negotiation that took place. Right. They do. Yeah, they do kind of have a, a party, so to speak. Back in Abraham's fatherland. 
I don't mean uh, the two of them seeing each other. And, and so once there's an agreement of marriage, the next step is a consummation. Right. That's marriage. Yeah. There is no wedding ceremony. Yeah. The, the practice of ceremonies and stuff appears to come later. The idea here is that once it's agreed upon by the family and the community, then all that's left to do is to consummate it. Yeah. So that is what's done here. It's mentioned that he takes her. It doesn't say he takes her into his tent. Yeah. He takes her into his mother's tent. Did, I thought that was it. I don't know what to make of that. Did, did you notice that? And do you have anything to say about that? I did notice it, but I'm not really sure exactly what to make of this. I mean, the idea is that Sarah has died, mm-hmm. right? And so now she is going to become the matriarch of the family. And so this is going to become her tent, so to speak, right? This is mm. her inheritance, I guess. She gets what was his mother's, right? Because she doesn't have any daughters to give it to. Okay. I like that. That's good midrash. Yeah. And so something something there is going on. So then we get to the account of Abraham and Keturah, his, his other wife. Here, if the chapters are chronological, which it's not completely obvious that they are, then Abraham marries Keturah after Sarah dies, but he's already pretty old and has quite a few kids by Keturah. So it's very possible that Keturah was a wife that he took before Sarah died. Not really clear here. Yeah, it's not necessarily the case that that this is chronological. Yeah. That's a big maybe or if. It's also ambiguous because it calls Keturah his wife, but then in some verses later, it says, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living, and he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. So it's not clear if this verse is referring to Keturah as one of the concubines, even though it first referred to her as a wife. Not sure. Yeah, I had that question too whether she were being referred to as a concubine right after she had been called a wife. And again, maybe maybe it's not referring to her as a concubine. Maybe it's just saying there were others which aren't mentioned in any other verse that I could see besides this one right here. The idea behind him sending them away is a little bit like we see in other parts of, of Genesis, especially with Abraham, when there's too many people supposedly in one place, you know, one People goes off. That's what Abraham did and and Lot did. And and then Abimelech sends Isaac away. We're going to get to that here in a bit. And I think this is, it was one, not to create any sort of contention over the inheritance. Also to not uh, put too much burden upon Isaac, maybe to support this huge family, something like that. Right. He does become, he, he gets to rule over his brothers, as we'll see. But that includes responsibility for them. That means he's taking care of them. Right. And not only his brothers, but the whole family. He becomes the patriarch. So this is uh, another one of those iterations that we talk about here where you do genealogy, narrative, genealogy, genealogy, narrative, genealogy, right? Yeah, we saw that. We get some genealogy here. Uh, We get back to Ishmael. Talks about how Ishmael had 12 sons. So this is the fulfillment of the prophecy that he would be father of a great nation. This is foreshadowing the fact that Jacob or Israel is supposed to have 12 sons. And so I don't know that we get here. Does it list maybe in a later chapter? Does it list the names of the sons of Ishmael? Oh, yes, it does. It does list the sons of Ishmael here. Yeah. Okay. And this is fulfillment of prophecy. We were told that he would have 12 sons and we were told, we were told that, that they would be at war with each other. Right. And so this is, this is now given as a fulfillment of that prophecy. A lot of what's going on here uh, in this narrative is we start getting into Isaac himself raising his family becomes an echo of Abraham. And one of the first things we see with this is the fact that Rebecca, Isaac's wife, is barren, it says. And so he prays to the Lord and then Rebecca conceives. So again, this is an echo of the Abraham 
Sarah narrative where Sarah is barren and after a long time and praying to the Lord, the Lord does promise them a child and, and fulfills that. This is also pointing out that the Lord comes to deliver his people, whoever, you know, the oppressed are. And in in the example of, of Hagar, you know, and then Sarah is oppressed by this barrenness, you know, the Lord delivers and then she delivers a baby, right? And then you have Rebecca in this case, you know, experiencing the same kind of thing, all to drive home this narrative that the Lord has intervened in the lives of these people at every step of the way. Rebecca conceives she's got twins. And this is this is funny to me. It says the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is to be this way, why do I live? And <laughs> my first thought on this was you know, her basically commenting on the struggle of pregnancy, you know, talking about how difficult it was. But Christopher, you brought up, well, she's she's foreseeing the fact that they will be at odds with each other, you know, in life. And if they're already fighting in the womb, then what does this mean for when they're, you know, they're grown up? This prefigures their future. Right. So we get this, the Lord's pronouncement to her here. She She goes to the Lord with what's going on. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. Now, one of the questions I had on this was this statement, the one shall be stronger than the other. And it's not clear who the one is that's stronger. Is it, do you think referring to Esau saying that Esau is actually stronger than Jacob But then it says, but Jacob, who is maybe the weaker, Esau, who's the older, will actually serve him. Is that what it's saying here? That's how I read it. Of of course, we haven't gotten there yet, but we, we get a description of what Esau is like and a description of what Jacob is like. And Esau is the stronger one. Yeah. Jacob is a homebody and Esau is this, this wild man, you know, even his, even his hairiness from birth gives us this sense of of this wild man. It reminds me of... Um, Rugged. Well, it reminds me of Enkidu from the Gilgamesh, and it also reminds me of John the Baptist. Sure, yeah, live not in the wilderness. <laughs> right. So here we start this narrative that, again, is another echo of an earlier story in Genesis, but we're going to go all the way back to Cain and Abel. And there are some some pretty strong parallels here between... The story of Esau and Jacob and that of Cain and Abel. You know, whether this this seems intentional in the telling of the narrative, but there are, you know, some certain differences in it. But this is actually a motif throughout uh, scripture. You know, we, we're going to see this more times where you have the brother rivalry. We even get it in the Book of Mormon, right? And so this is this is going to be a common thing. That and of course the the birthright going to the second rather than the first son. Yes, so that's a common thing too for the birthright. One of the sometimes cause for the contention or outcomes of the contention is that the birthright ends up going to the younger son. So, yeah. Can I just, before before we move on, there's something I wanted to point out here in, in chapter 25. I mentioned earlier that the Abraham cycle ends here in Genesis 25. And so it's important to note, so we had... We had a lesson, you know, a the curriculum that is gave us a reading on Noah that ended in chapter 11 of Genesis, and we pick up the story of Abraham in chapter 12. But the story of Abraham actually begins in 11. And it makes sense that we would say, okay, you read, because you are reading about Noah through chapter 11. But that doesn't mean that Abraham doesn't show up until 12. He actually shows up in 11. But of course, if we've already read 11, we start at 12. And here we are in chapter 25. And we have the end of the Abraham cycle at verse 11. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt by the well Laharoi. Now, right before this in verse 10, Abraham is buried in the same place that his wife was, that lot that he purchased for this purpose. And in verse 12, we see, now these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son. This is the beginning of a new story. So, I don't know where the chapter numbers came from, but this has nothing to do with where we are in the story. The chapter numbers have nothing to do with where we are in the story. If you're looking for where you are in the story, you read, now these are the generations of Ishmael. 
So if we back up to the beginning of the Abraham cycle, what chapter is that? 11? Yeah, mid mid 11. Towards the end of 11 is when it starts talking about generations again, and it lists Abraham. Right, so it's verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begat Lot. That's verse 27, 11. So this is, this is what to look for when you're going from one story to another, not chapter numbers. Right. These are the transitions, the genealogical lists. And, you know, the chapters definitely correspond between many of the translations. I'm not sure at what point along the line of these translations were chapters decided. That I don't know. That, as I mentioned. Another thing that that I can say about these chapters, though, and, and the division of the reading in the curriculum is that this is the second time, this week is the second time we see that, according to the documentary hypothesis, that there are two versions of the same story, one from the priestly author and one from the Yahwist, uh-huh. that gets separated into two different weeks in the reading, making them less obvious. Right. And so the first time was, which story was that, Ben? In, in the Abraham cycle. I'm thinking about the ones we're talking about right now, but I don't remember the specific ones. It would be the story of Hajar, right? Yes, that is correct. There are two versions of that story. Uh-huh. And in this week's reading and next week's reading, because again, the reading ends this week with one of those accounts and starts next week with another, it would be what? It's the blessing of Jacob. Yeah, we have two different accounts. Of right, exactly. Why Jacob is sent to, to find a wife. Right. Yeah, in one of the accounts, it's Rebecca sending him away because, well, we'll get to it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, back to the parallel between Cain and Abel here and, and Esau and Jacob. Again, we've got an older and younger brother. They have different lifestyles. You know, Esau is a hunter, man of the field, it says. Jacob's a quiet man living in tents. Now, you know, these lifestyles don't don't mirror exactly Cain and Abel, but we do see that they get their living in different ways, right? So their lifestyles are different. That's a definite parallel. Yeah. Obviously Esau comes, he's he's hungry from being out. There's this negotiation over food in the birthright. Esau sells it for the pottage is what we call it, but this is probably like lentil stew yeah. is almost certainly a what it is. A mess of pottage, right? Yeah. Yeah, so lentils were and still are one of the the most common dishes in, in the ancient Near East at that time and what we call today the same geographical area, but in a different time today in the Middle East. And one of my favorite meals, Ben, I love red lentil soup. Yeah, it's pretty strong translation that it would be lentils is because it is referred to as red. And the only red thing that you cook like that is lentils. This is sort of a play on words and the character of Esau because he's seen as a hairy man and one of the accounts refers to him, his hair might even have been red. Right. And then these lentils are red, right? So this idea of redness is is kind of involved here with, uh, with Esau. And this hasn't come up in the conversation yet, but at least today in, in this week's reading, so many of the names, if not all of them in, in the Bible are just... If you read the King James, you get, because Jacob reached out and grabbed his brother Esau's heel, he was called Jacob. And that doesn't make any sense, right? (laughs) Other translations will tell you, because that's what that means, right? That Jacob means that he did that. And Esau and all these names. And then, of course, you have later on, we'll have Abimelech, which isn't necessarily the same Abimelech that we saw earlier with Abraham. It's a title. It's like Pharaoh. Yeah. So we have either that the name means something or it's not a name. It's a title. Yeah. So the name Jacob probably means may God protect. That's that's probably really what the meaning of the name is. But it becomes a play on words in Hebrew, which happens all the time here in Genesis. And because of the translation, we don't see that play on words. But it becomes a play on the words here because it's similar to the Hebrew word for heal. And so... The idea is that, oh, he, he, he took him by the heel, and I guess that's an idiomatic expression for supplanting someone, which you know then fits into the narrative of, oh, Jacob gets the birthright instead of Esau. So that's kind of how that comes about. Right. I can't help but think of Oedipus in this context. Because of the heel? Yeah. And, and the, the idea that he was named uh, Oedipus because of his heel. Well, I mean, there's stuff going on with the heel with uh, Achilles too, right? 
That's right. <laughs> so we've got these two different lifestyles between Esau and Jacob, just like between Cain and Abel. And when we get into the narrative of the blessing, they both have something to offer the father. So Jacob kills of his animals, you know, his of his flock and and brings it to his father because that's what his mother Rebecca tells him to do. And then Esau goes and hunts and brings of his meat to his father. However, in the meantime, Jacob has done this and by so doing has obtained the greater blessing. And when Esau comes, he gets the lesser blessing or it's not seen as a worthy of a, of a sacrifice to put it in terms of Cain and Abel, right? And so this is a very similar in the way that those two sacrifices are treated in the Cain and Abel narrative. You know, the Lord accepts Abel's sacrifice, but doesn't really accept Cain's sacrifice. Very similar to what's going on here. You know, Isaac kind of accepts Jacob's sacrifice, but doesn't really accept Esau's sacrifice in a sense. Right. And so Jacob gets the greater blessing and Esau's very upset about it, just like Cain's really upset about it. And sure enough, Esau's so upset about it, according to Rebecca, he vows to kill Jacob just like Cain actually kills Abel. However, in the narrative, Rebecca tells Jacob, and that's the main reason that he's told to leave and go to the house of, of Abraham's family, right? To her brother, we should say, Laban, right? That's where he's supposed to go. Right. And to stay there for a while. So he's he's protected by that. But again, throughout this whole thing, there's all these parallels between these stories. And and, uh, you know, that could be intentional or, or it could be one of those things that's like, well, this is archetypal within literature and stories. And so this type of thing is, is going to spring up all the time anyway. Yeah. And Jacob's going away to to Laban is that takes us into next week's reading, chapter 28, right? It does a bit. So coming back to to Rebecca, she hears her husband say, to Esau, go and kill me uh, venison, make me the soup the way I like it. We, we really get this this impression of Esau's father, that Esau's his favorite because he loves his food. <laughs> he loves the, 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 the <laughs> venison that he brings him. And so he wants some of that. And he says, go get me that, and then I'll give you a blessing. And when Rebecca hears this, she comes up with this subterfuge, right, that she tells her her son Jacob, who's her favorite, to go and get what is it? It's it's not venison, right? It's from the from the flocks that they have. So there's it's so the many flocks, things. Yeah. There's so many things about this that you would think would tip off Jacob's father, but that don't. And it looks to me, it looks a little bit like a like a Little Red Riding Hood story, you know, where where the things are noticed, but they're explained away or passed up, passed up, and on we go to the next thing that's noticed and explained away or or, or passed up. Yeah, what hairy hands you have. What, yes, what, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but first, before we go into that, Rebecca here looks like she's, and I mean, she is being deceptive, right? She's. This is a subterfuge, but why is she doing this? And why in the end does Isaac let the blessing stand? You know, he lets the birthright go to Jacob instead of to Esau. And it looks to me like Rebecca's just doing what she has to do to make it so that what the Lord told her would be becomes. Yeah. Well, it does raise the question, like, so it's okay to lie and deceive as long as you're doing what the Lord says <laughs> you're supposed to do, right? <laughs> I didn't say that, Ben. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the story is strange. <laughs> you can really see parallels between, between Esau and Isaac. It seems like, so Esau is willing to sell his birthright for some lentil soup. And Isaac is really into Esau's soup, right? So yeah. he thinks with his stomach, right? And, yeah. and I get that. I get that. I, I, I often do too, you know. But that's not, that's not what we see in, in Rebecca and Jacob. So there's a sense, we've pointed out the differences between the two brothers, but we can also see the differences between the spouses and how Rebecca and her favorite are similar and how Isaac and his favorite are similar. And in the end, I think Isaac realizes that it was meant to be and he lets the blessing stand. Although it's interesting because it's a question in my mind whether it, the text makes it sound like he couldn't possibly take away the blessing once he gave it. There's nothing he can do about it. 
which seems odd, especially when when Rebecca had said to Isaac, when he said, well, wait a minute, what if I get found out and I get cursed? And she says, let the curse be upon me. So the curse can change from person to person, but not the blessing. There is a sense in the culture in which once a blessing is given, it's irrevocable. Like you can't retract something once you've released that, the power of those words, right? I mean, this is even talked about in terms, in the scriptures, in terms of the character of God, you know, like God has spoken something, he can't take it back. Right. And so if a blessing is given from the mouth of the Lord, right? The lowercase L-O-R-D in this sense, then that's, that's the law, right? Like you you can't take that back. It reminds me of a couple of expressions from, from Arabic, Ben, you know, ilifatmat, the, the past is dead. What's done is done, right? Yeah, what's done and is then, done. And, and this, again, is, you know, a sister language and culture. And another one is maktub, right? What is written. Uh, what is written is written, and that's that, right? Yeah, well, I mean, again, we're talking about, at this point especially, this is largely an oral tradition culture. And so... Yeah, the spoken word, especially when you come something like this, yeah, it becomes more sacred. So there is a sense in which if it's done, it's spoken, then that's the way it was supposed to be. That's equivalent to maktub, right? To it is written yeah. Yeah, yeah. In, that, in that context. So maybe now is a good time to go into what the birthright entails. Yeah. There, because there, you know, the birthright that goes to the, usually to the first son, but as Every time in the Bible, it's the second son, and there are different reasons why that happens, and we've seen some of them already, and we'll continue to see this as a pattern throughout the text, or throughout throughout the library, I should say, this collection of texts we call the Bible. So firstly, there's a double portion, right, of, of, of an inheritance. And so this is done not to dilute an inheritance, right? And, and then when it comes to patriarchs, there are two more things at, at play here. Two more things at stake. One is the land, the land that has been promised, in this case, Canaan. And the other is the actual blessing that is given to Abraham becomes the blessing of Isaac and later of Jacob, right? So there's the, there are those three things. And Esau knows this, by the way. When he sells his birthright, he knows this. And it's not important to him. He says, I'm going to die. In the end, we're all dead, like Cain says, right? What, what difference does it make to me, this birthright? And that's an interesting attitude. And for it to matter to Isaac is, I find both responses equally interesting, right? Because it's true. You're not going to be there. What do you care, right? But then that's that's sort of an individualistic way of looking at it. In a more collectivist way of looking at it, which is more in line with the culture, but then we see that Esau is this, this wild man, right, in some sense. So maybe he's different in that way you get more of a sense of the, it's something that Aristotle doesn't really cover in his, that that probably seems like it comes out of left field, right? So Aristotle deals with happiness and what it takes, what are the ingredients for happiness in his book, uh, The Nicomachean Ethics. And one thing that he doesn't cover in all the things that he covers, he does such a great job at dealing with the topic, but he doesn't cover joy in your posterity. Joy in your posterity isn't one of the ingredients of happiness in Aristotle. And this is what we get in our tradition, right? That there's joy in your posterity. And so that's something you experience now, even though it's not happening now. It reminds me of this idea that we plant trees that we're not going to eat the fruit from, and we're not going to sit in the shade of. Yeah. You know, one of the ways that I see the contrast between Jacob and Esau with attitude towards the birthright is that that Esau sees the birthright simply as a blessing, whereas Jacob apparently sees the birthright as the responsibility to bless. Right? Remember that Abraham's charge from the Lord wasn't just a blessing upon him, but it was also a responsibility to then bless everyone else. And so the fact that Jacob maybe has a little bit more of this mindset, according to Rebecca, I think, that Jacob really has that temperament and that attitude and desire to fulfill that responsibility to bless others, because that's really what the the responsibility of the one who gets the birthright is, right? You know, once the, the father dies and you receive the birthright, the reason you get more is because you're supposed to take care of the family. You take charge of everything 
And so you're responsible for all of that. And that includes inheriting this uh, this covenant. And the covenant is all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your posterity. And so again, Jacob seems to have more of this attitude and this mindset towards that. And Esau's saying, well, I'm going to die, you know, so it doesn't really matter that much to me. Again, he's still looking at this birthright as, as something that enriches him as opposed to a responsibility to bless others. That's a really good point and very much true. And we read in the blessing in the text, it tells us that that Jacob will rule over Esau, that he'll rule over all his brothers. And, and of course, that would include sisters and he's going to be the patriarch. But that rule means that he's responsible Right? So he's going to be he's going to be taking care of them, and that's something that we get you know in in today's patriarchy in today's uh, idea you know in and this is why we have section one twenty one right when it comes to priesthood, it's about blessing others. It's not about power. That's that's what priesthood's really about, and and the authority is not necessarily hierarchical. Of course, you can have the the authority that comes from experience and the and the blessing of others coincide with a hierarchy but it's not necessarily the case right yeah and and any sort of power is the means not the end you know the the power is the means by which you bless others it's not what you get for blessing others and that's one way to talk about it i'm i'm talking about it in a way that i'm saying it's not about power at all and that's my reading right. of section 121 Right. But I, but I know what you mean. Um, we do have this other narrative in, in chapter 26 that we uh, jumped over a little bit so that we could get through the continuity of that, the Jacob and Esau story of, again, Isaac uh, following in the tradition of his father, Abraham, of being a peacemaker. You know, Isaac is a man of means and capability. And if, you know, he wanted to go in and take over these places, he, he definitely could. But he digs these wells, and then the Philistines come and they fill them up, and then he just moves on and digs another. And it just happens time after time, and I guess they kind of get sick of having to fill up all these wells all the time because they just keep digging new ones. In this, I see sort of a representation of meekness in Isaac. I see, again, his willingness to be a peacemaker. And for that, ultimately what happens is these people come to him and they say, you are greater. We want to make a covenant with you. And again, I see some beatitudes in this. I see the meekness being that he he inherits the land because of his willingness to go and dig all those wells and, and not create contention. And then I also see the peacemaker uh, part of, of that here in, in Isaac. Again, the idea being that he he is following in the tradition of, of his father, Abraham, in inheriting the land because of his goodness and his propensity to bless other people, not because of his military prowess or riches outright, but simply because of his manner of living. Well put, Ben. That's good, Midrash. So what what else do we see here? You know, Esau does ask for a blessing and... Isaac does give it to him, but it's kind of a shadow of the Jacob blessing here. This is another example in which we've got sort of this, the, the Cain and Abel narrative going on here. So, Yeah, whereas, whereas Jacob will have the dew, which in the desert is the most water you're going to get. And so he'll be able to plant, to reap and sow, or to sow and reap. His brother is going to have to make off for somewhere else and probably live by plunder and rapine, right? Rapine? 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 Um, I've heard it pronounced both ways. All right, then. Take your pick. <laughs> so there is one last part here in chapter 26 we want to talk about. And we did kind of jump over it a little bit because, again, we were trying to follow that narrative of Jacob and Esau. But this is, again, the, the echoes of the same events that happened with Abraham. And so there's a famine in the land. And it even says it right in the text. It says, now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that occurred in the days of Abraham. I'm saying, this is a new famine. <laughs> and Isaac went to Gerard, or Gerard to King Abimelech of the Philistines. 
And he's headed for Egypt, right? That kind of seems to be the idea. Like his father. It's It looks like it. And he's told not to go to Egypt. Yeah. What you do when there's a famine is you go to Egypt because Egypt always has food. They have a glut of wheat because they can, you know, the Nile floods every year. And so they can always produce. And so if there's a famine, you go to Egypt because that's the only place that there's reliable food source. They're not dependent on rain. Right. And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt. Settle in the land that I shall show you. Now, if you'll remember, back when we talked about Abraham first coming into the land, there was a famine. And Abraham just passes through the land and goes down into Egypt. And we talked about how it's not explicit in the text, but how it appears like Abraham isn't quite doing what the Lord told him to do at this point. Like he he's he's supposed to go to the land and settle in the land, but he decides to to go down to Egypt because, you know, it's too hard. There's a famine. And so we get this explicit statement here, which to me kind of validates the way that we talked about it before with what Abraham was doing, that it wasn't quite as obedient, if you if you want to say it that way, uh, because the Lord tells Isaac, don't go down to Egypt, settle in the land that I shall show you, reside in this land as an alien, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your descendants, I will give all these lands and will fulfill the oath that I swore to your father, Abraham. Yeah, he reiterates that blessing. I really am going to give you this blessing. Stay here. Yeah. Don't go off to Egypt like your father. Yeah. Who went off to Egypt after I told him he could have this blessing here. Yeah. So when Abraham goes to Egypt, he tells everybody that Sarah is his sister because he's afraid they'll kill him if he says that she's his wife. Because she's so beautiful. Because she's so beautiful. Isaac stays here and there's Abimelech, which is, again, analogous to Pharaoh in this sense because he's the king of the Philistines. I don't know exactly the Hebrew that this would come from, but it definitely, you know, Semitically looks to me like Abimelech, something like father of kings or something like that. This isn't necessarily the same Abimelech. Remember what Abraham did with Pharaoh, he also did with Abimelech. Yes. And so this Abimelech gets this three times, you know. That's right. Yeah, this is probably a different Abimelech. I would say. But now we have the same story again, like father, like son. Yeah. Jacob says Rebecca's his sister. Exact same story. And and for the life of me, I, I don't really, I mean, it's sort of, I understand what the story is saying, but it, I don't understand really why this is, is happening, why they're doing it like this. It's just a kind of a, a bizarre doing. I mean, and even, even Abimelech's like, why did you do this? This makes no sense. And so Abimelech looks out uh, his window and as one translation has it, he sees Jacob and Rebecca making love, we can certainly say they're being intimate in some way if you triangulate among translations. Yeah, they're treating each other like nobody would treat each other unless your husband and wife, right? Right. And so he says, why did you tell us this was your sister? This is just like with Pharaoh, just like with Abimelech and Abraham and Abraham and Pharaoh. But thank goodness, you know, we found out before anybody slept with her. And then Abimelech says, nobody touch her. Yeah. Three times this story has happened so far. Odd thing. Again, mirroring the story. It's almost like they're, it's almost like Isaac is is trying to be like his father in every way he knows how, you know? (laughs) And as far as that blessing goes, that is being reiterated here, the same blessing that was given to Abraham is being given to Jacob here, that he'll have all this seed and that all this, all his seed will be blessed and that all, all these people will be blessed. You know, going back to Rebecca in in chapter 24, because she's going to be Jacob's wife, now we can say, we can make sense of where it says that she'll be the mother of thousands of myriads or thousands of millions, depending on which translation you're at. Myriads is even more vague than, than millions, right? And so that blessing is going to apply to Jacob in the same way that it applied to Abraham. And so the story moves forward. Right. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Yeah, we're establishing this line that that goes back to Abraham. Again, this is this is Genesis, so this is the Israelite founding myth where they are establishing their legitimacy. And so each one along the way, they have to give a very solid reason why this person is the one who inherits 
the birthright, so to speak, but a birthright in, in a broader sense, you know, not just the inheritance of the property, but also the inheritance of the tradition and the blessings of God and the covenant. And the promised land. Right. And the land. Yeah. Which is kind of the biggest thing. All right. Well, is there anything else, Ben, that you'd like to cover? Uh, no, I think that does it. That's all I've time. got. Yeah. Okay. Well, sure. Appreciate everything everybody does to make this podcast possible. The editors and the posters and the just everybody that does everything. Shiloh and Lindsay and Tom and Kyle and Christian. Right. For, for helping us catch up after we fell behind, after falling ill. Absolutely. Well, we'll sign off for now. For Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Ben Peterson. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Thanks, guys.